hello and welcome to episode 13 of Dano Says So with Joe Principe. Far and away, just in terms of pure numbers, people who are familiar with Joe are going to be familiar with him by virtue of his work in Rise Against. He's also a founding member of 88 Fingers Louie, who I have some personal history with. And very exciting to me, he recently laid down bass tracks on a few new tunes by Dead Ending, which features... No, Dano says so, alumno Vic Bo- alumni Vic Bondi. So, uh, <laughs> Joe Principe, thank you for doing this. Of course, yeah. Thanks for having me, Dan. Yeah. Um, before we went on, I, you and I were talking a little bit about what a crazy year it's been. Um, Chicago in particular, I was reading about today. Chicago underwent curfew. Chicago called in National Guard. So, sort of the BLM slash George Floyd, just racial justice uh, Upheaval has hit your town. Can you tell me about it a little bit? Yeah, I'll say, so, you know, I live in the Chicago suburbs, you know, of, uh, you know, with, with my three kids and my wife. <laughs> and um, it was interesting because all this was going on and I wanted them to know, you know, wh- what was going on. They were pretty aware of the situation with George Floyd and what happened. But I come from, you know, my uh, my father, my uncle, and my grandfather are, are all were, were they're passed on now, but they were police officers, really? you know. So in in Melrose Park, Illinois, which was very mafia centric in seventies and eighties, like right. like it was it was uh, so you have the police officers and then you have the mafia. Um, so everyone was like, well, how was your dad? Was he an honest cop or was he, you know? Mm-hmm. just kind of fell into what what people seem to fall into when you're a cop and you're power right. hungry. Um, from what I can tell, he wasn't, he wasn't like that. He was, you know, was pretty, he wanted to do the right thing. He doesn't, he didn't have a history of, mm-hmm. you know, complaints and things like that. But, um, and, you know, growing up, I was raised to people's color of skin, like, None of that matter, but the town I grew up in was very racist. I mean, it was very, it was all Italian. It was that, right. it was very good fellows, you know? So like, I think growing up, I think because I had these, these, I was just, I don't know, these blinders on to like, to what was going on in my town because at a young age, I ventured, this is a total tangent, by the way, I ventured off. That's what we're <laughs> here for, sir. The less I talk, the better job we're doing, I think. <laughs> well, I, I, at a very young age, I, okay, I was like in third grade. Mm-hmm. I'm walking down the street. There's a skateboard literally on, on the sidewalk. And I was like, oh, that looks fun. And then I just left it because it wasn't mine. Every day I would walk past it, skateboard's still there. Long story short, I stole the skateboard, learned how to skate, discovered Thrasher, Transworld, mm-hmm. um, and at the same time, my sister, who's five years older than me, got into punk rock, Dead Kennedy, Suicidal Tendencies, wow. you know, even, even um, you know, Bad Religion, Circle Jerks, like all that stuff. So at a very young age, like I wanted, I loved her. Like, she, you know, like I loved what she was into. She, you know, right. I looked up to her, you know. Um, so I stole her tapes and I started just getting into skateboarding. Of, I'm hearing a lot of theft here, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> Go on. All innocent. <laughs> um, a lot of innocent theft. Anyway, go on, sir. <laughs> no, but I, I think um, growing up in that world that's so young, I just, you know, punk rock, you're, you're already singing or screaming. I, I don't want to say screaming for change, <laughs> but you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, I was exposed to Dead Kennedy's lyrics in, in fucking fifth grade, you know, like, and at the time, I didn't really understand the gravity of what Jello Biafra was singing about. Uh, I just knew it was different, and it wasn't what my town was doing. Like as as just society, as okay. you, you go to you know go to school, play sports. You're supposed to act this way, you know. Um, and and God forbid people of color come into town, you know. But like it's like. Um, and I did notice that growing up, but in my head, it was like, well, skateboarding didn't see any color. It just, I just didn't think about it. But um, anyway, so I wanted to instill that in my kids was my point. <laughs> um, and um, I think that, um, so the town I'm in now is pretty liberal um, as far as a Chicago suburb. Um, 
it's it's very upper middle class probably mm-hmm. um but like i said pretty pretty liberal and there was a rally in town and the the weeks leading up to that you know uh, you know because chicago they're break, you know windows are being broken there's looting and all this stuff and there were you know people posting on on the neighborhood social media page like be careful you know like they're coming the protesters are coming it's like mm-hmm. well wait a second you know it's it, there's difference between senseless looting and peaceful protests you know like there's there's a point there's a there's a difference right mm-hmm. i mean the country was founded on dissent <laughs> it's right. like um so i brought my kids to the rally in town the black lives uh matter rally and it's it's funny because people are talking about like you know spreading coronavirus and all this stuff everyone i've well behaved wearing masks keeping their distance um peaceful no one's breaking windows even though the whole town was boarding up their windows um you know so it, it was that was my experience with that like because you know again with having children i'm a little bit removed especially like what was happening in downtown chicago because i live about 50 minutes from there okay. you know maybe 45 minutes um but you know i think coming off the the heels of quarantine and people are, are fucking sick of cops beating people up and killing people. You know, it's just everything came to a head. Mm-hmm. And of course you're going to get violence. It was like inevitable. Um, you know, there are a couple, couple of things I take away from what you were saying right there, which is first off, you know, you gave a long preamble, which you needn't be apologetic for about sort of how <laughs> we come up, but you know, that, that sort of eighties and nineties era post skater American hardcore group of people, there was kind of a big save the world five going there and like a real, yeah. a, a real like belief that some attempt at moral ascendancy was an obligation in doing that music or being part of it. Right. Yeah, absolutely. This year has sort of exposed who was phoning it in and who, who truly lives there. And I don't mean by who chose to be the boots on the ground, but the fact that some people have swung around and now aggressively post the most par- paranoid myopic, you know, counterpoints to everything they've said for 30 running years, simply because they're, you know, they're worried about the wrong boots on their lawn, you know? Yep. Oh, 100%. Yeah, yeah it's it's interesting. Um, and, and it's also being in the band Rise Against, mm-hmm. you know, people are like, you're in Rise Against, why aren't you doing this, this, and this? It's like, well, yeah, we, we are politically outspoken. We are socially aware and, and and, you know, we like to, our, our job, I think, is to prevent, prevent, present facts, factual mm-hmm. information. Don't, don't force feed anything to anybody because, you know, you're just going to regret, they're going to spit it back up. You can't force feed anything to anyone. You could try, but, you know, people more times than not are going to be like, fuck off, you know. I think you're right. I think it's a faulty method. Yeah. And, you know, growing up in Chicago, um, I... I loved Los Crudos as a, you know, a band, what they stood for, um, political hardcore. They didn't, you know, they were singing to, to um, their, their scene and their, their, their neighborhood, you know, they didn't sing in English, you know, Martin mm-hmm. from Los Crudos. Um, it's funny because 88 Fingers Louie and Los Crudos played so many shows together, but obviously, like, 88 Fingers Louie was very skate, skate punk, no effects you know, There's a, there's a know? contrast there. There's at least, at least in terms of sound, there absolutely is, you know. There, there's a contrast, but we had the common bond, right, of, like, no, like, like f- fuck racism, fuck this. You know, you know like, like I, I guess in my head, it, it's, it was common sense things. It was like, well, yeah, like, who cares what someone's skin color is and who, who cares, um, um, I guess just the live and let live kind of thing, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, like if, if, if someone's, I don't know, you know, it's, it, I guess it's live and let live. But if I'm going to see something that's, that's, I don't agree with, I'm Italian. I have to speak up. I, I have to open my mouth. Um, but my, my, you know, my point was um, um, Martin from Los Crudos, he would explain um, every song before they played it so you would have like 
it was a showstopper. It was like, here's a song and it was raging. And then he mm-hmm. would stop and explain the next song. And in, when I was younger, I was like, I love Martine to death. He was, a, he is the sweetest guy in the world, but please just play the song. And now it's like, no, he had to do that. Cause they were singing in Spanish and half the crowd mm-hmm. couldn't speak Spanish. Like, really? so fuck me for getting pissed for, for, you know, not letting him speak his mind, you know, but again, young and stupid, but, um, I, un- I understand the, the, the relevance, you know, like why, or why the need to do that. Um, the, so I, I don't, you know, that's needed in that instance, I guess. It's, it's an interesting thing. And I think sometimes it's a personal evolution. Like when in, in hardcore bands, when I was younger, I was notorious amongst a microscopic group of people, but for the things that I would say on stage in between songs, right? Yeah. With Shiner's Club, I'm, I might as well fucking be Dean Martin up there. Is it's, it's, it's a non-political statement. It's a band that exists to exist in personal demons, you know, and it just, it has no place. In finding that I'm doing an apolitical band and I'm not trying to circle this around to me, I, I, it's kind of opened up my perspective. The fact that it's really odd for any artists to mandate the presentation of other artists, which it took me a long yeah. time to arrive at, which is, you know, can you sort of not associate yourself with people whose views you find morally repugnant? Yeah, absolutely. But yeah. their methodology, it's none of your fucking business. It's true. Yeah. And that that's what makes every band different too. It's delivery. And it's, mm-hmm. it's you know, if we were all doing the same, the, if we were all doing the same thing, it would be boring, you know? It absolutely um, would. Um, you know, and it, it's kind of like, it's kind of like a, a style. And I think when you're, especially when you're a front man in a punk band or hardcore band, I think what I, what I noticed growing up is their personal style, just as, as a person, the mannerisms that always carries to to stage, you know, and that's what mm-hmm. makes a band, you know, that's what makes naked Reagan, naked Reagan and articles of faith, articles of faith. It's just, it's who they are, you know, and, I don't want every band to be the same. I don't want safe. Like I want, you know, like I, I want, I want to be exposed to, to all kinds of assholes and super intelligent, insightful people. And, you know, I want to be exposed to all of it because you learn from it. Let's seize upon the examples right there. You're naming, you know, you talk about Crudos, but you also talk about, you know, your own band and 88, 88 Fingers Louie at the time. And just now you mentioned Naked Ray Gun. You mentioned Articles of Faith. In American hardcore, in American punk rock, people will usually mention Boston, they will always mention New York, and they will often mention California. Chicago is a goldmine of influential music. Yeah. But is seemingly left to its own devices and not, in my opinion, included in the national conversation the way it should be. You think that's true? I think it's 100% true, and... I've, I mean, I've had this discussion so many times, you know, over the years, and I don't know if it was just the lack of touring, because, fuck, Articles of Faith definitely toured, you know, mm-hmm. a, a lot, um, and I know they, they got out there, I think Naked Raygun, they were limited on getting out to the West Coast, and not limited, but they, they only went out there a couple times, maybe. I don't remember they, if but, I saw them, I know I saw Big Boy, which impressed me, because they weren't touring on much, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Peg Boy, oh, I, I, I love Peg Boy, but they, um, I mean, I know they, they got like, they were on a Social Distortion tour and Jay Robbins has played bass for him on that tour. Um, but I think, I don't know if it was not laziness, but like kind of laziness. There was a lot of, a lot of bands just stayed in Chicago. Um, Interesting. Nick, Nick and Reagan would hit the East Coast because it was easy for them to get out there. It was short, short drives and they can take off of work. Um, just being friends with them, you know, like now, better friends now than I was, you know, when I was a younger guy, I didn't really know them then. Um, and talking to, I think Screeching Weasel got out there because they got on Lookout Records um, and they toured a lot. I think they were before us, AD Fingers Louie and Alkaline Trio and, and those kind of bands before we existed, I think Alkaline Trio kind of, or Screeching Weasel kind of carried the torch, you know, they, like they didn't with, even occur to me when I was giving the setup, but it illustrates my point. Yeah, I mean, 
It's interesting because um, there is a lost sound. That it's not. I don't want to say sound. There are lost factions of Chicago punk rocks um, that people don't understand. Like Rise Against is heavily influenced by Naked Raygun and Pegboy and Articles of Faith, and you would never know it though. And every band from Chicago. Um, sounded different. Big Black didn't sound like Naked Raygun, didn't sound like the Effigies, and it's like, oh, Effigies, Effigies toured a lot, I would, I would, I'll say I saw that. the Effigies, the Olympic in California, which, seeing anything at the Olympic is something you'll never forget. Oh, well, yeah, and then there was, there was the, the, the beef between Articles of Faith and Effigies, you know, which, mm-hmm. you know, like Vic, Vic Bondi, you know, our mutual friend, yeah. um, he always said he's like those guys were like the 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 right wing kind of contingency, you know, for our 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 scene, and and we were the other way, so we were always butt heads. Um, yeah. And now John Kesdy, the singer, he's a like he was a I don't know if he was like a DA in Chicago or something, and you know, but anyway, um, I do agree. Like like a lot of those bands just got lost over the years, other than the you know effigies and articles of faith because of american hardcore coming out you know and all that Mm -hmm. like the documentary um i mean i always say this articles of faith is a band if you're a rise against fan Mm -hmm. or a fan of aggressive music do yourself a favor and listen to articles of faith because they were doing stuff gang of four-esque before Mm -hmm. fugazi was a band you know and people just it's like they don't understand that and Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, now that he and I know, I'm just, I'm, I'm just chip, charming into support. Now that, you know, we've done the podcast together, we're working on episodes and we're conversational and he's, you know, been kind enough to tell me some complimentary things here and there. I confess to it and be able to laugh about it. But I will tell you, as much as I feel like I can call anybody in the punk rock world and, and, and hold my own and hold a conversation, ooh, I was nervous getting ready to interview Vic. You know, coming in cold, <laughs> interview me, honey, I was intimidated as hell. You know, so yep. I get it. I mean, by 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 the sheer size of the guy's brain, by the intensity of his howl, and by his musical history, I was like, okay, fuck what? You said you wanted this interview. Let's do it. <laughs> you know. Yeah, Vic, Vic is uh, a sweetheart, but very in- intimidating. Mm-hmm. I mean, me getting in the room with him the first time when Dead Ending first started uh-huh. um, was so... It was for me, I mean, I was a nervous, I was acting like a nervous kid, you know, like yeah. I couldn't, I was, I couldn't really focus on, on playing bass. Um, I would, I remember staring at Derek, our drummer and not looking at Vic because I just kept <laughs> thinking like this dude, this dude wrote like my father's dreams, you know, this dude right. wrote every man for himself. It's like, fuck. Um, but, you know, again, I, I like to think over the years, I, I mean, I was able to learn from people like Vic, you know, yeah, and, and, you know, it, it's, it's what an honor being, being a part of, of that band for sure. Yeah. So I know that you were an original, so you brought it up and it, it's an ideal segue. I know you were, I believe you were an original member in Dead Ending. And I know you swung back to do this recent, uh, recent material. What's that whole experience like and what has, what has dictated your, being a part of it and not being a part of it? Um, I think, okay, so Jeff Dean, the guitar player, who I know Jeff because Jeff was in a band called The Story So Far with Dennis from 88 Fingers Louie. After 88 broke up, Jeff moved to Chicago from, he lived in, he grew up in Las Vegas. You know, he's in Faded Gray, okay. uh, that hardcore band. Um, he moved um, to Detroit because he was buddies with the Suicide Machines, like that band, uh, the, the ska band. Um, and then, with yeah. yeah, like, but very, they're very good, um, politically driven, you know, ska punk hardcore band. Dude, um, my, this, that's on me. My music, my musical tunnel vision is shameful. Like, well, you know, and, I, like and, you know, I like it. It's hard to get me out of my groove, you know? Yeah. And I, w- I would say for some people, and I include myself in this, there's a stigma that goes along with being ska punk. So I was never like, mm-hmm. I liked Operation Ivy a whole lot. I was going to say, there's only one, exe- there's only one exception <laughs> to that. There's only one exception to that rule, sir. Like it's, it's, uh, yeah, it, it's, it's interesting, but, but Suicide Machines, they, they kind of snuck their way in as, 
they yeah. got my respect over the years. But my point is, so Jeff moved to Chicago um, with Derek, who was the drummer of Suicide Machines. Derek was also in Elkline Trio, and Derek also was the drum or is the drummer of Dead Ending, uh, Derek Grant. Um, and so Jeff had this idea, like, to start a hardcore band with Bondi, because mm -hmm. fuck, because Articles of Faith and Vic needs right. to be screaming his head off about something. So Jeff knew I was a huge Articles of Faith fan, and we were just buddies, you know, like we, over the years, like we've, we, 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 we like a lot of the same music. Mm -hmm. um, and he liked the way I play bass. So he asked me to join about five years ago, maybe. Mm -hmm. And with our schedules, it was like, it was so difficult to get all of us to re record, to write, play shows. I think we've only mm -hmm. played like three shows, like Chicago, yeah. Detroit, and then they played no, we no. I uh, we did. I did two Chicago shows and then Detroit, and that was it. And that was over the span of five years. <laughs> mm -hmm. So, um, um, after like three years, I, I like Jeff. You know, he kept trying to like rally the troops and get together, but Rise Against was always gone touring. Mm -hmm. And um, I said, I don't want to hold you back. I'm like, so I, I got to. I'll take a step back. You know, if you want to get someone else, so you guys nice. can play more. Right. Um, and then they got Nate from Ensign uh, to play bass. And um, that that lasted and they kind of fizzled out a little bit. They never broke up. And then recently Bondi was getting all fired up, you know, being in quarantine. And he's right. like, let's fucking, let's do a Dead Indian EP. And Jeff, Jeff, he and Jeff wrote some songs and Nate wasn't able to do it. So uh, Jeff got, got me back in the mix. He's like, hey, you're probably home doing nothing. Do you want to play on this EP? And we all just recorded in our, you know, in our, our parts separately, you know, like, like, yeah, Jeff, Jeff sent me the drum tracks and the guitar tracks. And I just re played bass over that uh, in my home studio. And Cause it's got a, it's got a very immediate, very, for lack of a cornier term, old school, you know, cohesive sound. So that kind of catches me off guard. Yeah, no, it, it, it's whatever we did, it definitely, the mood was captured correctly. Like, I, like it's probably my favorite thing that we've done with me and the band, you know, like just, it was like no, no fucking around, you know, like right. here, here it is. <laughs> and it did take some sand to cover the, to cover the clash, man. <laughs> oh, you know, but, it, I didn't realize this. So that was Jeff's idea to cover uh, mm -hmm. that, right? And Bondi, yeah. Bondi wasn't sure. He wasn't on board at first. You wouldn't have been um, able to get me to touch it with a gun to my head, but you guys pulled it off. You know? Yeah. Oh, thank you. It was Vic. Yeah, Vic. Vic did a good job. It's a hard song to sing, you know, with the same delivery uh, that the Clash had. Well, there's just certain shadows you don't want to stand in, but you guys crushed it. You know. Oh, thank you. Yeah. yeah. Um. So, uh, talking about you know, in some ways, all roads lead to rise against. What is trippy to me, you know. You and I have exposure to each other, you know, twenty something years ago, yeah. And then, like a lot of people our age, although I think I'm a little bit older than you are, but it's really the internet that's allowed us to socialize again, you know, and to sort of, sort of, you know, run around giving mutual tips of the hat. You and I played together in a fucking bowling alley. Yep, we right. sure fucking yeah. Yeah, well, Fireside. we've gone in two directions since then, sir. Um, and I'm very <laughs> curious. I know it wasn't immediate. I know it wasn't overnight. I know there was a ladder to be climbed or a staircase or a pathway or a, you know, a mountain trail involved and in where Rise Against started and where Rise Against has landed. It has to have been a strange journey for someone who's been exposed to the various spaces you've been exposed to. Yeah, so it's funny because it, it, it is, when you put it that way, like, it is a it's been a crazy journey but in my head it's like it's it's just this normal kind of progression and when it, by progression mm -hmm. i mean so when we played when 88 fingers really played with with speak mm -hmm. at the fireside um that was a time when i was trying to introduce more hardcore influences to 88 sound our last record mm -hmm. had a lot of like hardcore songs on it mm -hmm. um and then you know just I mean, it's funny because growing up in Chicago, I wasn't, it wasn't, I wasn't exclusive to a sound. It's like, I loved West Coast punk. I love West mm -hmm. Coast hardcore with, you know, of course, uniform choice. Um, and then I loved East Coast. I mean, Agnostic Front, all that stuff. 
and then the DC sound. I just, I think living in the middle of the country, it was just easy for me to get to, to get all these influences thrown at me right. um, by various people, you know? Um, so I think when 88 broke up um, the second time, because we broke up for a little bit in 96 and then we got back together and then we played with you guys uh, with Speak, um, you know, after putting out like another record or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I was so submerged in um, wanting to do something along the lines of like what Seven Seconds was doing with, you know, the positive message, you right. know, just, just like that, waving that flag, you know. Um, um, I just, I wanted to, I don't want to say more meaningful because I think 88 Fingers Louis lyrics got more serious as mm-hmm. as we went on as a band, you know, like I think they were, they were maybe a little bit more introspective with Dennis, the way he wrote his lyrics or whatever. Okay. Um, um, but I think um, 88 broke up and it's it's interesting. We broke up, but what happened was we kicked Dennis out of the band and then we wanted to continue with a different singer. Mm-hmm. And we realized, Dan, our guitar player and myself, we realized like, this is, we just gotta, we have to start fresh. Like, why, why do this? It's replacing okay. the singer is the hardest thing in the world. So, um, we had this demo of seven songs that were 88 Fingers Louis songs, like musically. Mm-hmm. And we, we were trying out singers and as for a new band. And then we tried out like 20 dudes. And then I think I actually ran into Tim, our singer. Like I knew Tim through his now wife, but then girlfriend, because Aaron, his, his girlfriend or his wife um, was a big 88 fan. So she was always yeah. hanging out with us. She was super cool, you know? Um, and I ran into him at, at uh, in Indianapolis, out of all places, with Sick of It All, AFI, Indecision, Hot Water Music toured together. And we, I drove up to hang out with AFI and those dudes. Mm-hmm. And uh, Tim was there to see Indecision. Okay. And I'm like, hey, you want to try out for this band I'm starting? And then everyone was like, that's not going to work. You know, his influences are so different and your influences are different. And then I think that's why it worked is because it was the melding of of that it, it pushed his influences growing up with listening to like psychic Cato and the midwest emo scene okay. you know more art, art i don't want to say arty music but not so straightforward although he did grow up listening to minor threat and you know descendants mm-hmm. and those bands but he was very into like you know fugazi and and the the, the 90s period discord right. stuff okay. um so I think his influences, my influences just kind of gelled and, and um, it was an extension of 88. It was my, is my point because that's the direction I wanted 88 to go in. So we started this, we tried to play more hardcore shows. We toured with Boy Sets Fire and the movie life and Thursday. Um, you're, toured, reminding was, me what a tri- you're reminding me of what a trippy time that was. A lot of these yeah, are names totally. I haven't heard in years. Yeah. Yeah, it's it was definitely like a, like we felt a little bit like a fish out of water with being we wanted to be straightforward hardcore, you know, and at least I did. <laughs> and and uh it was a little bit of fish out of water, you know, but we did tour, you know, with Sick of It All and those dudes helped us out immensely. They took us to Europe for our first time. Yeah. Um but and we were trying very hard, right? So Fat Mike, my relationship with Fat Mike from 88 Fingers Louie helped us get on fat you know so we did our first two records on fat and we're like okay like we don't want to get be lopped into like the fat record sound you know like like you know because obviously they had a sound it was lag wagon and without 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 knowing the history rise against in fats and odd mix yeah wait let's say it again if you don't know the history if you don't know the genealogy there it could be argued that no matter what period rise against you're talking about it's still a weird fit with fat records Oh yeah, I mean, well, I think at the time Mike signed Anti Flag, and he's and he had good riddance, which obviously you you interviewed Russ. Um, Russ is very outspoken; they're very political. So we 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 felt a a little bit of uh, camaraderie with with those guys, and, and any kind of veil, but very obviously very political. Right. Uh, um, so that was a time when Fat was trying to branch out and get away from that no effectsy sound, you know. Although I did admittedly grow up liking that sound you know like I, I i there was a part of me that liked that um so um you know as 
as Mike was expanding fat and we grew our sound a little bit and after our second record, it was like, we went to Europe with, with the mad caddies from Santa Barbara, right? The ska band, they were on fat records. Okay. There was a voice message on my answering machine from DreamWorks. Mm-hmm. And it was this, this A&R guy. And I was like, is someone fucking with me? Like, is this one of my <laughs> friends? Like, yeah, right. this is, this is uh, Ron from a, you know, DreamWorks or whatever. And I was like, no way. So I called this dude back and he's like, hey, your, your record revolutions per minute like fell on my desk you know like i i like what you guys are doing and i was like all right like thrice with the signing of thrice and thursday like every r guy was trying to sign bands like i get it right. um it's something we didn't seek out we didn't like we were like we i was my goal was to play to as many people as we could in the venue we were booked at i didn't i didn't have like i'll like i didn't have my sights set on stadiums or a major label, uh, record release, any of that. Well, to my to my perception, the first switch that really flipped, or something that was really instrumental in taking you from one type of room to another, and I could be totally wrong, but it seems like the seems like the Warp Tour and the radical growth of the Warp Tour played a big role for you guys. It you know? did. So it's kind of what happened well, to us. Hey, is, hey, which one, which one of us is going to know? Me or you? <laughs> you well, so well no you're right because i think we had two different experiences on warp tour we had the warp mm-hmm. tour when we first started we were playing the vulcum stage mm-hmm. and we're playing in front of literally 10 people and okay. then our major label debut came out when we signed to dreamworks after we're like okay. we actually worked out a deal our deal with dreamworks which was only dreamworks for a month and they got melded into geffen, geffen so we were yeah, we, i knew about that yeah, so we were like, oh shit, like, like we're gonna get dropped. We didn't get dropped. Our deal was total artistic control for like less money. We didn't want the big payday. Like we wanted I, to be. I negotiated a, a baby version of that in my own history, so I understand it. Oh, I was they, lucky because my mother was a, my mother was a contract lawyer, so I was like, I've got free oh. legal services to nail this thing down the way I want it. But I'm yeah. just saying, I under I understand what you had to do and that you could do it. So pardon the interruption. Yeah, no. A hundred percent. I think, you know, at the end of the day, you know, obviously we made the right choice because when you, when you're in debt to the label, they're on you, they want that money back. They're, they're the bank, you know, they want to make make their money back. But when it's like less of like a loss, they kind of let us, they literally let us be like, we were still touring on the warp tour to 30 people. Um, (laughs) And then our singles didn't really work out, you know, on that, that okay. major label debut until someone at the labels like, Hey, there's this acoustic song on the record. Let's just put it out there and see what happens as a last resort. And we're like, oh, shit, shit, we're going to be like those guys where they, they're, we have this acoustic song and then right. we're going to be the one hit wonders. Um, and it, it caught on right away and we were like, Oh shit. So stuff started taking off, which led to, venues you know capacities increasing and getting billed higher on the warp tour every year after that we played after that and it gave us a little leverage you know with our so we came off the heels of the successful single um writing a new record they left us alone like we never demoed for the label we've never turned in a demo to to when we were on geffen and, and um interscope because nice. we ended up on interscope um so we just kept doing what we were going to do, whether we were on fat epitaph or any, any label. And it just worked, you know, like, cause our record after that, we ended up having like three, you know, huge singles, off, mm-hmm. you know, not acoustic. They were actually rock singles, uh, well, but we were I, still so playing punk rock. It cracked me up when I was researching for the interview today. Cause I was like, you know, can't really talk to him about fireside bowl and, 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 and deep dish pizza for, for 30 minutes. <laughs> you know, so I'm gonna, I'm, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna have to get my technical facts straight. And the further you get into the story, it starts referencing every article I would read would start referencing where certain records or certain singles charted, right? Like where they would land on <laughs> Billboard. And I was like, you yeah. know, that's not a language I speak real fluently. <laughs> it's, it's, it was, it was in my head. I mean, it was nuts. I mean, you mm-hmm. know, because I, we all, we all came from where you come from like playing vfw hall shows right. so to to be submerged in that world and then you're playing radio shows you know like k 
K-Rock you know, radio shows. We were doing the Inland Invasion with mm-hmm. like wh- whoever, you know, and I was like, what, what are we doing? Like, it felt so like fish out of water. And then it, it just started catching on. And I, I was like, man, like this is, it was just, it, it was just surreal, you know? Oh, and, was there, has there been a point as the spaces have grown, as the size of the backing has grown, I understand you had creative freedoms and you had to protect it in your contract, but have you, has there ever been a point of friction where sort of the bands out at, you know, pronounced social conscience and, and sort of, sort of political identity has made the people involved with you nervous or resistance in any way? Um, no, we've, we've been pretty lucky because I think from their perspective for, you know, it was, for lack of a better term, it was, it was their unique marketing tool. You know, yeah. it was like, it was, it was their, you know, we, that's how we. Your conscience was your book. Yeah, basically like okay. they had, they had their Weezers and their Jimmy world and you know, right. they had bands doing, doing safe, safer music. I mean, I love Jimmy world. Don't get me wrong. They slept um, in my living room in Orange County. I didn't really know them. The guys I lived with did. <laughs> But every time, it's another one of those things where I'll be doing one of these interviews and somebody will say something, I'll be like, God, man, there was a time when the world was microscopic. Yep. Oh, for sure. I mean, yeah, those dudes, they, they come from hardcore and punk rock too. Like, uh, good, great guys. Um, but I, I think they saw the label going back to, you know, our, our political just being outspoken. And mm-hmm. um, I think we we were kind of like the the bratty kids like oh let's use this platform and ruffle mm-hmm. feathers as much as we can right like we we actually had the army we because we were we were we kind of made the crowd turn on on the army recruiting at warp tour and they got kicked off or they left the warp tour because of us and they pulled their sponsorship money from kevin lyman um and we kind of got we we got in trouble what's that I was saying, how was that? And go ahead, just go, keep going. Well, Although, I, I, so, I love hearing that. That's like, you know. So they were making, you know, they were doing, like, they had this tent at Warp Tour, and they were doing, like, push-up contests with, you know, kids and pull-up contests, and they were making people sign their little, like, their mail, mailing list, which basically was they were trying to get kids to sign up for the fucking army. So um, we saw this from stage, and Tim, our singer, w- was like, basically he just started talking shit and he was like see those guys right there and he you know he pointed right. at him and he and i forgot what he said exactly but whatever he said turned into cups of pee getting thrown at the army tent <laughs> and they left right like they were they like it's like they're the army and they left because these these teenagers were assaulting them with cups of pee well i mean there's, there's a small space within an entity that i don't know how i feel about it i've never been to one i've never attended the work tour i know a lot of people who do a lot of work with people who are, who were pivotal in it right yeah but there's a point where the kids true punk rock nature so there's the, the, you know i'm gonna give i'm going to give the panel thumbs up to throwing this at the army at the work tour <laughs> Um, but I, I I do think but, we we use we use those those um, venues and that that platform, you know, for at least in my head the the the, the common good. Like so, when we were on Warp Tour, we aligned ourselves with PETA, you know, and we we did we did signings only at the PETA ten. If we were gonna do a signing, uh, like fuck trying to sell like Rise Against merchandise, like like we're gonna go to the PETA ten and and to get people over there so they can read their, you know, what PETA was handing out at the time. Um, so we just, we just did things like that, you know, like, do you remember, do you remember the big rash of signings in 88, 89 when in effect giant, everybody was, was trying to pick up a hardcore band, Yep. Right. Yeah. Um, that was the first time a lot of these mechanics came in and people, you know, no for answer dabble in that a little bit but you would have label people suggesting in stores and signings and in-person appearances and you'd want to throw up and you'd be like oh god right and like it was yeah hardcore will never forgive me if i buy into this silliness <laughs> i'm hearing i'm hearing good stories about you from you about turning those machinations on their head and turning them into beautiful things so i say i say good on you um thank you 
my 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 take on this and the the, the bottom things uh um on my notes the last two things that are written are political bands political man right um the world is shut down and you are a professional i ask most touring musicians and most full-time musicians this during the pandemic but how are you dealing with that you know um it's it definitely goes in it, it it's been it's been difficult because i realize like like everyone in our industry mm-hmm. it's such a huge part of my life and not having that outlet i mean set aside like basically being out of work right like i'm not there's no there's no real income coming in um which which is fine i think we're 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 lucky enough to to weather the storm and get by and survive as a band. Like we'll still come out of this. Okay. On the other end, whenever that happens. Um, I think being living in the Prince of B household with me during this, <laughs> it hasn't been very easy for, for my family because they okay. see, they see this, 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 like there's, there's something very absent and that's being on stage. It's that it's cause I'm not, I'm not a very vocal person, but that's how I, I, it, that's my release is playing and, and looking like an idiot on stage, you know, like that's right. what I, I, I live, I live to do. I've hit a couple really bad depressions over the course of quarantine and both times they were at points when I wondered whether my band, which is far less visible, but whether it would return, whether it would become functional again. And if we did, yeah. whether the venues would be there, but really whether, Maybe unhealthily, I see my singing voice or my from the stage voice as being my more useful or therapeutic voice, and I don't know if it'll ever be returned to me. You know, right? Well, I, I, I get it. You're, you're like a caged beast with this crap. Well, it it's true, and and then I also realize like when you're do when you do one thing for thirty plus years, right? Because mm-hmm. I know you you you've obviously fronted you know bands, and then you took a break for a while. Mm-hmm. And then you went back to music. Um, when when me, I, I, I've done music, you know, I would say maybe a little less than 30 years straight. Right? Uninterrupted? Bam. Uninterrupted. Um, and I realized, like, I don't, I don't, as a person, as Joe Principe, like, like, oh, shit, like, I don't, I don't have another thing <laughs> I, 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 I hear you and and like that's that's kind of scary but it, what it's done is it's made me not it's made me i guess to try to get out there and do a little bit more like like i'm i'm i hate to say it but i'm a i'm a coffee dork right so like i've kind of okay. submerged myself in barista world in my house but like learning like you know learning about how to be a barista and like things like that, like, mm-hmm. which obviously I'm not, I'm not going to be a barista full time, <laughs> but um, I think it's, it's just getting out there and learning new things is my point. Um, right. It's made me at least get out there or, or at least be more physically active, like riding my bike. Like I, I'll go on super long rides, like 40 miles, uh, 50 miles on, on the road, not, not like mountain biking, but like, um, and just just kind of get out there where when we were touring all the time, like I wouldn't want to do that or have the time. But um, yeah, like it's it's made me kind of rethink like life life as as Joe Principe, like like who who am I aside from the band? It's been kind of interesting. Like I've been at odds with it internally. That's that's <laughs> kind of powerful, but it's 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 very real. Uh, thank you for sharing it. It's yeah. it's logical. It makes sense. Okay. Uh, a man with a social conscience, a man who's in some very political bands in a political year. Um, before we get done doing this, how are you feeling about the election? Do you have any fears, anxieties, predictions? Um, I Well, I can tell you right now, I'm definitely vote. I mean, I'm voting blue. I mean, to no, you know, no surprise. Um, right. Um, you know, and I, I, I actually listened to, you know, your, your episode with Russ about the Green Party, uh, and I hear his, what he was saying about that. But I think there there are so many, cra- it's just, it's 
it's bizarro world right now, right? Like, so that every day, like, like anyone could open the news and Trump is saying something. Um, and at this point, it, it doesn't matter what, what the, in what context, what, what the topic is. It doesn't matter what he's saying. It's crazy. It's like, it's that, it's that, um, what's the word I'm looking for? It's almost like this manipulation technique, right? Where someone says something and then they say polar opposite and then they keep going back and forth to confuse their audience. That way that the audience starts tuning them out. It's a very like Putin kind of thing. Um, it very much is. Like, and that's what's happening. And it, unfortunately, I have family members that are kind of buying into it, which, you know, they, they'll that's probably gotta, listen that's to That's got to be tough. Yeah, it it is, and it's 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 disheartening because I think if you have common sense and you have it just social or just kindness in your heart, mm-hmm. you you wouldn't go that way. I mean, he clearly is is I, I, I mean I don't know, sociopath. I don't know. I don't. This, and there and there there is a base meanness to 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 the culture he's created. You know, or that, exactly. or, that or that he's championed, or however you want to put it. Yeah. Well, yeah, and, and and when you have someone saying like, "Pandemic is whatever; it's not a big deal. It's going to go away when you know it warms up." And then, oh, you know, maybe you should try injecting bleach to make it go away. Like, I mean, is he just is he like knowingly fucking with people, or is he truly just off his rocker? Like, what? You know what I mean? Like part of me just thinks it's like, like I have a, I have a musician friend who like, I, he's so close to, to my heart and mm-hmm. he, he's, he's loved by many people. I don't want to say his name, but he purposely will play dumb, on, you know, but he's the smartest guy in the room to mm-hmm. get a reaction. Right. Right. And, and it's like, is, is, is he, is Trump nuts or is he, on this crazy level of, of fuckery where like he just... I, I think, unfortunately, that you can accomplish more through force of personality than you can through the power of your intelligence. Oh, um, yeah. Okay. You know, I think, I think that the, the Germany in the 30s is, is, is the classic example of that. Um, I've always thought that people disqualified themselves whenever they, whenever they drew parallels between Adolf Hitler and whoever their political opponent might be. It's a cheap yep. gimmick. It's to me, it was always disqualifying until now. Absolutely. Um, I, and, and I, even then, I don't know if I'm full of shit in going there to that end. I've booked an interview with a professor of history whose area of expertise is the evolution of, of the Nazi party and of anti-Semitism. Um, wow. Yeah, he, his, his name's Gabriel Rosenfeld, and we're setting the date right now. And uh, I'm over the moon to hear what parallels he draws, you know, and hoping that if it moves the needle for even one listener away from Trump, I'll feel like I did a good, good thing. Yeah, absolutely. I was going somewhere that circled back to you and I's discussion, but it's, all, it's a hell of a thing to have a political conscience your whole life, and then in your 40s or 50s, you know, after the end of, you know, nemesis records and racism t-shirts and things like that to suddenly be living through another area era of larger and more sustained race rioting um you know living yeah. under the most openly hateful regime this country has has, has presented in our lifetimes it's a mind yeah it, it's it's like i i my heart breaks for my kids is obviously especially like like any parent who doesn't buy into the bullshit that's going on. Like, you know, of course for me having a daughter when pre-election, when he's, you know, he's telling, you know, guys to grab girls by their pussies and all that stuff. It's like, wait, that's the red flag. (laughs) Like, why is he like, why did he move past that? And then um, I, I, I cannot remember the name of that guy that he was with that, that, um, the guy interviewing Trump when, when he said, grab him by the pussy. Billy something um, or other. It was on one of the entertainment magazine shows. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, right. God. Exactly. So he got fired. Trump became president. <laughs> like what's wrong with that picture? Right. Um, so it just, it, you know, it's funny. We were, we were, Rise Against was recording our, our last record in Nashville, Tennessee, the night 
of that ele the election mm -hmm. and none of us watched it because we're like Hillary is totally it's shoo-in it's you know there's no way Trump's gonna win right? Right. and I woke up I woke up to Trump being our president in Nashville well Franklin Tennessee where they already had Trump signs everywhere it was like kind of crazy to, to wake up and be in rise against and be in Franklin Tennessee where there's it's very right-leaning and then here I'm driving the like Trump <laughs> yeah well yeah like and now I'm driving to the studio and there's literally Trump signs on every farm and I was like holy shit like am I did I die am I in hell like what is this but I didn't die <laughs> and yeah so um after Fireside Bowl is this a false memory or did we go out for deep dish somewhere oh my god we went to congress pizza which okay. uh that's where i usually that was my go-to I, I yeah congress pizza or or this place giordano's pizza mm -hmm. uh but congress is where i would take people because it was right by fireside bowl around the corner and they could accommodate they were always empty because it was kind of a weird place and mm -hmm. i could always get a large party in there what um, i remember was you being extremely proud of it <laughs> and you really showing, showing your Chicago to a, to a deep, deep level. Yeah. Go on. I, th I think, um, I think, I mean, there's, there's the, there's definitely a, a deep dish pride, obviously. And I'll forever fight with the bouncing souls and ensign and sick of it all over East coast pizza versus Chicago pizza. Um, <laughs> to this day, me and Craig from sick of it all still, still talk still fight about pizza right. Fair so enough. like yeah so, i mean so that anyway but um yeah i think i think it was it was a way of me showing a little bit of the city to some out of towners you know because I, I brought a lot of bands to that place okay uh, well here here's yeah. here is the cheesy segue du jour um i worry that the venues are never never coming back i wonder whether i ever get a chance at my small stage and you at your varied stages again uh, but if we do and we're ever in the same state, uh, next time I'm buying, all right? Thanks. Thanks, Dan. All right, cool. Well, listen, Joe, thank you so much for doing this. It was a real delight. Yeah, thanks. Nice to see you. Okay, take care. Take care. This is the story of Whitney Houston. This is the story of Kurt Cobain. Of George Michael, of Otis Redding, of Amy Winehouse, of Michael Hutchins, Bob Marley. This is the story of Prince. It's a new podcast series. About how they died, why they died, and why we're still talking about them so long after. It's like nothing you've ever heard before. It's storytelling. But it's more than that, because rock stars... They tell us how we feel. They change our mood. They change the clothes we wear, the people we hang out with. The way we remember things. It's them who give us those ludicrous moments, the ones where you're... Jumping around, singing your heart out, feeling understood. And it's those moments we'll help you remember, the ones you're thinking about right now. That feeling. That feeling. It's coming soon from Crowd Network. Just search for Death of a Rockstar on your podcast app. And subscribe now.